Father God, we thank you for that love. The love that calls every single one of us by name. The love that you displayed so powerfully on a cross so many years ago to let us know that we were not alone. We were not abandoned. We were not forgotten. God, I pray for every heart that's represented in this room. I pray that you, by the great power of your Holy Spirit, would remove any barrier, seen or unseen, spiritual, emotional, psychological, that would prevent us from hearing you speak to us and remind us of your truth. We pray these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last spring, my daughter was kind of in the heyday of soccer, and uh, I was taking her to her stadium, an indoor stadium. It was a busy day on Saturday. They just run the games back to back to back to back. And so because we were running late, as I'm prone to do, I dropped her off at the little drive through loop, and then I went looking for a parking spot. And there was, only, there was only one left that was close. Now, have you ever noticed that it only takes one person not to park exactly between the lines to throw the entire universe out of whack? And so as, as a result, I was able to nose into this spot, but because everybody else had kind of jammed up oddly, I was off center. And I was parked much closer to the vehicle on my passenger side that I wanted to be, but I was running late. There wasn't time to find another one, so I got out. And as luck would have it, as I, with my other three children, am walking into the arena, the woman who is parked immediately next to me is walking towards her vehicle with about an eight-year-old soccer player. And she looked at me with all of the disdain that she could muster, and she said, Really? You're going to leave me like this? And I, I'm, I'm apologizing profusely. I'm like, I'm sorry, ma'am. I did the best that I could do. The spaces aren't level. I tried to get even. And then she just, she glared at me again and she said this. She goes, well, thanks a lot. And with all of the grace and the wisdom that I could muster, I said, you're welcome. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think that sarcasm is a hallmark of spiritual maturity. But that, I'm, just being, I'm just being honest, just being real. That's, that's how that one went. Have you ever had one of those moments where somebody does something that you are clearly not thankful for? And the one thing that you want to say to them is is just the ultimate expression of ingratitude, which is, thanks for nothing. Have you ever stopped to consider, though, that nothing might be the greatest gift that somebody could give you in a moment? So I want to take that phrase and take the next few minutes to kind of flip it around, turn it on its head, and, and ask this question. Is it possible that thanks for nothing could be an expression not of facetiousness or obnoxiousness or immaturity, but thanks for nothing could be the expression of the deepest gratitude. Let's roll through this scenario. You've been on a road trip, and in order to make time over the course of the hundreds of miles that you need to travel, you are slightly or grievously exceeding the speed limit. And uh, you're just crossing your fingers, hoping that everything goes right, and then you realize all too late that there was a trooper right underneath the shadows of the underpass. Have you ever had those moments where you know as soon as you see them that you're, that you're toast? Like there have been times where I pass an officer and I just turn on my turn signal. I'm like, it's over. There we go. And so you just, you just park on the shoulder and you know those beautiful gumball lights are in your rearview mirror and the officer pulls over and trooper taps on your window and they go license and registration. And then they ask you this question. Do you know why I pulled you over today? And there are only one of two responses. One you can lie, I have no idea. Or you can confess and say, how fast was I going, right? And then you have that like awkward pause where they go all the way back to the vehicle and they're running your plates and they're running your license, they're running your registration. And you're asking yourself these questions. Where am I going to come up with $200 to pay for this? Or what's this going to do to my insurance? How many points are going to be in my license? What am I going to tell my parents, right? 
So you go, you go through all of these lists, and then you, just, you have that moment of just horrific anticipation where they come back up, they tap on your, on your window, and they say these words. Ran your record. It's clean. I'm not going to give you a ticket today. I'm going to let you off with a, a warning. Um, please try to slow down and have a great day. Now, I don't know about you, but when that has happened to me, I have been filled with such great elation. I want, I want to leap through the window and give that person a hug. Don't do that. That's dangerous. Uh, that's not in your best interest. That will scare them. But have you ever had one of those moments where you're just so ecstatic? Because, why? Because you realize th- that the answers to these questions, were you guilty of speeding? Well, yes. Did you deserve punishment under the law? Yes. Did the, what did the officer give you? Nothing. And are you thankful for that nothing? Absolutely. The Word of God says this in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? What's the author saying there? He goes, because we had broken God's code, we were deserving of God's wrath. But in his kindness, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us so that we could deserve less than the something we were owed. We could receive, by the grace of God, absolutely nothing. Have we been guilty of offenses against God and others? Yes. Do we deserve to be punished for these in the name of God's justice? Yes. What does the cross of Jesus Christ purchase for those of us who are in Christ? We purchase us the absence of wrath. You could also call it a nothing. And if we know that we have been forgiven, are we thankful for that nothing? Absolutely. There's a great story about God's gift of nothing that's conveyed in the life of Jesus. We find it in Luke chapter 5. If you've got one of our Bibles, you can turn to page 1031. We're going to pick it up in verse 17 and read through verse 26. We read this. One day Jesus was teaching... And Pharisees and teachers of the law, his rivals, his skeptics, were sitting there. They had come from every village in Galilee. So they've been traveling from all over the region and from Judea and Jerusalem. So some people have traveled 50, 60, 80 miles on foot to see Jesus. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. I don't know if you've ever tried to wheel a gurney into a residence. It is a difficult task. So instead, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. If you ever want to jump to the front of the line, coming from above is a brilliant tactic. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friends, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. 
The first gift God gives here is the gift of nothing. When that man got lowered through the ceiling, the first thing Jesus says to him is not, I'm sorry that you're paralyzed. Don't worry. We can do something about this. He says instead, friend, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. A standard dictionary definition of that word to forgive is to absolve, to excuse, to exonerate, to let off, to erase an offense. And when Jesus asked, what's easier, to forgive sins or heal paralysis? He might as well have been asking, what's easier, for you to jump to Mars or jump to Jupiter? Both of those would have been completely absurd scenarios. But ultimately, I believe that Jesus is more concerned about this man's spiritual state than he is about his physical condition. If Jesus were to heal that man and he were to walk away, but walk away unforgiven, he would still struggle under the weight of guilt and the stain of shame. So in a moment of bold compassion, Jesus publicly forgives his sins. Now, I don't know about you, but can you imagine being the friends who have worked very, very hard They're potentially incurring a physical cost because they're going to have to pay for the repairs. They've gone through the emotional strain of getting their friend there. They've done the physical labor of getting him up on top of the roof of this house. And Jesus says to their friend, hey, your sins are forgiven. I I don't know about you, but if I'm one of the guys on the roof, I'm like, that's great. It's not why we came. But Jesus says, get up your mat. Get up, take your mat and go home. And I believe that in this instance, the physical miracle is the exclamation point on the spiritual miracle. That in this instance, Jesus allows a tangible miracle. He allows the invisible, which is the man's spiritual miracle, to be confirmed by the visible, which is his physical miracle. Now, what do you think the paralytic's response to the first miracle was? Can you imagine being somebody who says, your sins are forgiven? I don't know about you, but that immediately starts some wheels spinning in my head. It would mean... Oh, well, he thinks that I have sins. What might those be? And where else was I looking to to find absolution or release from the guilt that I've carried? I don't know about you, but if you have been forgiven, or if you are being forgiven your crimes against God and others, the only appropriate response is gratitude. And if there are a few different ways that we could frame this thanks for nothing I want to submit them to you now. The first way that we can say, God, thanks for nothing, one way that we could possibly phrase it is, God, thank you for canceling my condemnation. I'm grateful for the mercy shown on the cross. There's a powerful verse that we read in Romans chapter 7 and 8 that says this, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, at my core, I delight in God's law, his truth. But I see another law, another reality at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then the writer here, Paul, answers his own rhetorical question. Thanks be to God, because only he can deliver me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says a verse you might be familiar with. He says, therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I heard a message once where the speaker said, there is a distinction between conviction and condemnation. 
Conviction speaks to your behavior. Conviction says you did something that was wrong. You need to name it. You need to own it. You need to be accountable for it. You need to repent of it. And you can be restored for it. Conviction speaks to a behavior. Condemnation speaks to your worth. Condemnation speaks to your identity. So the Holy Spirit is the author of conviction. The Holy Spirit will come into my life at the end of the day and say, Hey, you unnecessarily raise your voice at your children in a moment of anger. You didn't represent my heart for them the way that I want to. You need to apologize that. And I've lost track of the amount of times where I've been on my knees talking about children in the bed where I've had to apologize to my five-year-old, to my eight-year-old, to my 10-year-old to be able to say, hey, when I did this today, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I'm asking you and God to forgive me. That is the result of what? Conviction. Condemnation. Condemnation is an attack from the very enemy of our souls. The voice of condemnation isn't you did a bad thing. Condemnation says you are a worthless person. There's no hope for you. There's no redemption for you. There's no future for you. You're a loser and an outcast and a failure. You don't belong here. And if you have ever heard that voice, you know how devastating it is to try to function day in, day out with that thought bouncing around in your brain. Conviction opens the door towards redemption and reconciliation. Conviction is a sorrow that leads us to repentance. Condemnation is a sorrow that leads to death. And Jesus says, if you are in me, if you have owned your mistakes, if you have named them, if you're living in the light and not in the shadows, you can be forgiven and restored. And when that's true, when you are in Christ, there is no condemnation, none at all. A few weeks ago, we were at a staff retreat, and one of our colleagues who's a leader in our Celebrate Recovery Ministry, told her just an amazing story. And the facilitator got up and said, hey, just so you know, when she shares this, all of these details are hers and hers alone to share. So if you want to relay any part of it to somebody that you think it will help, you need her permission first. But she got up to speak. She said something beautiful. I'll never forget it. She goes, you know what? You can share any part of my story with anybody that you want. Because the truth is, my past has no power. The shame that I used to feel doesn't have any power over me anymore. So I can leave those, I can leave the past in the past. And I can leave my mistakes and my offenses, heinous though they may be, I can leave those in a very particular compartment because I am, and you heard it in the baptism, I'm a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Condemnation does not hang over me like a banner of darkness. I am a daughter of light. And when we are in Christ, when we know that we have been forgiven for all of our darkest secrets and all of our ugliest offenses, we don't feel that condemnation. And so when you're at a moment where you're getting ready to think about what you're thankful for, be thankful for nothing. Say, God, I want to thank you for canceling my condemnation. Another way that we can frame it is this. God, thank you for pulling my punishment. I'm grateful for the peace that was bought through the cross of Jesus Christ for me. We read these verses in Isaiah 53. Surely he, referring to Jesus, took up our pain. So when Jesus picked up the cross, he was picking up our pain. He bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God. Stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. That word transgress means to cross a line, to make a mistake. 
He was crushed for our iniquities, our offenses, our crimes against God. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It says, whose transgressions were on him? Ours. How many of them? All of them. Yours, mine, perfect strangers, people who lived a thousand years ago, the sins of everybody who will live a hundred years in the future, should Jesus tarry. The sin of every single person who ever lived was absorbed under the person of Christ in that moment. Now, I don't know about you, I don't particularly like to have somebody tell me, oh yeah, you've got a list of transgressions and it's long. But the thing that I love about the message of Jesus, it's an equal opportunity offender. Jesus will tell anybody who comes to him, look, there's some baggage. Look, you've got a track record. And in order for that to move forward, we need to deal with what's in the past. But that whole idea of what, what, what exactly is a transgression? I, I had said that it means to cross a line. Some of you know that we've got a five-month puppy in our house, and we're training him now with our invisible fence. If you've ever had an invisible fence for a dog, you know how it works. There's a line that's buried under the ground, and then there are flags to kind of serve as a visual demarcation for the animals so that they know if I go past these flags, I'm going to get just a little, little electric shock, a little buzz here that remind me that I am crossing a line. Why is that line there? Is it designed for our amusement? Like, do I like seeing my puppy get shocked? No. Why is it there? So that he doesn't die. All right? Because we live like, all right, we don't have any sidewalks. We don't have curbs. The street is right there. It is intended for his freedom and his safety. Have you ever stopped to consider that the lines that God has drawn around our lives are for not only his glory, but for our benefit and for our safety? And when we cross those lines, we're putting our spiritual, sometimes our physical, often our relational, even our financial well-being in jeopardy. What I love about our dog, his name is Chewy, what I love about his shot collar, it gives a little warning tone. He gets close to the line, he'll go beep, 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 as, as if to say, hey, bud, you're getting close. You can take another step, but you're going to regret it. Have you ever had those moments in your life where you're like, hey, that line looks fascinating. I wonder what's on the other side of that. And the Holy Spirit goes beep, beep, beep. I'm like, this is just, just take pause. You might want to reconsider this. And then sometimes we'll cross the line. Well, what's different between us crossing the line and what's different from my dog crossing the line? Have you ever noticed that his consequences are immediate and my consequences are delayed? Have you ever had those moments where you're like, oh, I crossed this line that everybody said was a big deal and that didn't hurt at all. And like nobody crashed and burned and my marriage is still intact and maybe I can do this again. How many of us, don't raise your hands, how many of us have learned the hard way that there's always a price to pay for our transgressions. That there's always a consequence on the other side of sticking our finger in the eye of God. Saying, I've got this. I think I know better. I know you've got rules that are kind of enacted for my well-being and for your holiness. But I'm, I'm going to do what I want. It doesn't end well. And every single one of us has jumped the rails. And maybe we haven't experienced an immediate consequence for those actions. But at the cross of Jesus Christ, he did experience a consequence, not for, not for his actions, but for ours. Colossians chapter 1 says this. It says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. So the writer here says that every single one of us 
who has a relationship with Jesus Christ, we went from people, being people who deserve death to being people who are friends of God to being people who are holy, blameless, and without accusation. That's good news. That is something to be thankful for, that Christ has canceled our condemnation and has pulled our punishment. But that freedom isn't free. There was a price that Jesus paid to spare us that punishment. One theologian by the name of Richard Niebuhr says, some people want to believe that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That everybody just gets to be happy and loved and fun, no matter what we've done. God's a feel-good God. We'll all figure it out. But the gospel says different. The gospel says that justice calls for punishment and mercy only has value in the context of justice. You can only receive mercy if you're willing to admit that you're guilty. And that's not something that I enjoy doing. I remember when I was a college student, I went to a small liberal arts Christian college and was in a Greek class and One day, one of our buddies, uh, I was a freshman at the time, I think he was a sophomore, Troy was not in our class. And I remember our professor, Dr. Heth, coming in. He was very, very serious. He looked really overwhelmed. He looked pained. And he would say, Troy isn't here today. And we said, you know, that wasn't really something that a professor would talk about. Kids miss class all the time. He goes, and let me tell you why. He goes, we caught him cheating on his exam. And um, he's been kicked out of this class. we're, We're failing him. And I remember in my 19-year-old mind being like really angst-ridden. I'm like, hey, cheating is wrong, but it's not that big a deal. Like, why don't we, just, why don't we give a pass? Like, this is a Christian university. We're all about mercy and second chances. And what I didn't realize in that moment is that if there had not been a consequence for Troy, there would not have been a bar of justice or a clear expectation for any of the other students. And while he did have to pay a price for that particular transgression, he was able to re-enroll the next semester. So in some ways, he did receive mercy from the institution. They gave him a chance to start over. And I think that he was able to finish his degree there with a completely different perspective of what his values and what his code of conduct was going to look like. But I believe that we need to be people who are saying, God, thank you. Thank you for canceling my condemnation. Thank you for pulling my punishment, the punishment that belonged to me. And then finally, thank you for defeating my death. I'm grateful for the life that was won for me at the cross. We read this in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So the the writer here, the Apostle Paul is saying, there there is an evil presence in this world that looks to deceive people and lead them towards self-pressure, self-promotion, and self-defense. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. What do we deserve? Wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, you've been rescued. And God raised us up with Christ and sealed us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 4. 
Because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Do you know what it's like to be dead in your transgressions? Do you know what it's like to hit a bottom as a result of your mistrust of God, your rejection of his goodness, and your failure to believe in his commitment to you? Have you had seasons of your life where the transgressions just kept compounding? Where the iniquity snowballed? Where the offenses just kept stacking up and up and up and up? And there's a party who said, I don't want to live this way. I don't know how to get out. I pulled away from God because I was afraid. And because I felt guilt, I couldn't go back. So I just did it again and again and again and again. And there's just this, this downward spiral. I didn't know how to get out. And you felt yourself flatlining spiritually. That's the thing about our offenses against God. Sometimes the more of them we commit and the more space that we get between us and God, it feels like a harder mountain to get back up. But the good news is that Jesus Christ through the cross transversed that huge chasm and said, I'm going to, even though you've done all this that is wrong, I'm going to invite you back in still. I remember a few years ago when I was living on the other side of the state, I was a volunteer police chaplain, and on one particular night I was doing a ride-along with some officers, and we had a call that a young man who they thought was inebriated or intoxicated on some form of illicit substance was just running through people's backyards, just screaming and banging on windows and causing a commotion. He was clearly not in his right mind. And so a citizen kind of found him in his backyard, pinned him to the ground, called the police and got for help. Their concern for his well-being, they took him to the hospital. And while I was there with the police, I, I heard this kid screaming as the staff was trying to restrain him. And he kept saying, my dad's going to kill me. My dad's going to kill me. My dad's going to kill me. There's just all this anxiety that now that he was caught, he had no idea how his father was going to respond. What I didn't know, that both obviously he knew and all the officers in the room knew, they knew who his dad was. His dad was the local judge. And so for him, the stakes were higher. And the reason that he couldn't come clean is because not only would it be a consequence for him, it would bring shame to his home. And he was painfully aware of how the consequences of his actions were going to have a wide ripple effect on all sorts of people that he cared about. And many of us are saying, it's too late for me. I I can't come home. Whatever punishment that it is that God has for me, I just just probably need to sit and take that. Because there's no hope for me. And there's no future for me. What is that? That's the voice of condemnation. It's the voice that Jesus came to silence, to shatter, to crush with his goodness. And the words here remind us that there's still hope for us. There's still hope for us. If you're vertical, if you're breathing, there's time for you to come home. Now, some of us are hearing this message for the very first time. Others of us respond to the message of Jesus like our baptism moment was 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And maybe we've been living like very noble and upstanding and righteous lives since then. And for some of us, the point between when we knew we were dead and when we became alive is so far in our rearview mirror that our sense of how deeply we needed God has become a little bit foggy. I'll never forget hearing a speaker at a chapel service once, and his name was Richard Allen Farmer, and he said this. He goes, every single time I come to the communion table, 
I break down and weep because I'm reminded of how great my debt before God was and how rich the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ is in covering over that debt at the cross, cleansing my record, giving me his nothing, and calling me his own. And I remember hearing that as a teenager saying, well, that's kind of weird. But 20 years later, I think I get it now. The more life we live, the more missteps that we have in our track record, the more willing I am to say, Lord, I am so grateful for the gift of nothing because I'm guilty of more crimes against you, against myself, against other people than I I can count. I need to repent of more than I have been able to keep track of. And you forgive it all. The word says that you take our sins and you bury them under a blanket of mercy like pure driven snow. It says that you take our sins and you, would, you separate them as far as the east is from the west. It says that you take our guilt and you bury it in the deepest sea and prevent anybody to go fishing for it. You say, because I have laid down my life for you, even when you were wrong and didn't know it, even when you're hostile and you wouldn't admit it, even when you were actively pushing against me, I reached out to you. Have you received the mercy of God? Have you tasted it? And if so, have you lost sight of it? Are there offenses that were committed a decade ago that still haunt you? Because when you're in Christ, they don't have to. Are there offenses that you committed two days ago that are unresolved? We get a chance to come to the table of Christ with great boldness and say, God, I need to be forgiven again. Will you cover me in your goodness? There's one last verse in that Luke 5 passage that we read earlier today that I want to come back to. Everybody who watched that man get forgiven and they watched him get healed in the same moment, what'd they say? They said, we have seen amazing things today. And you know what? So have we. When Kenzie and Carsey were baptized just a few moments ago, what were they saying? They were saying, everything that I have ever done, even in our young lives, has been buried under the mercy of Jesus Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Behold, we are new creations. I love how Candy Carson was. He's like, there's stuff in my past that I'm not proud of. Well, guess what? It's his past. It doesn't have to haunt him anymore because Jesus Christ has restored him and called him new. And even though he and you and I deserve God's judgment and punishment and wrath for all of those things, God pulled his hand when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done it yet, We want to give you an opportunity to do it today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to receive communion. And for some of you, this communion, coming to the Lord's table is going to be a refresher. It's going to be a chance for you to say, God, thanks again for your great mercy. And for some of you, you're going to take communion as a believer in Jesus Christ for the very first time. Because in between when I say amen and when you walk down any one of these aisles to receive communion, you're going to say, God, I believe that your body was broken for me. 
so that I could be made whole. I believe that your blood was shed for me so that my blood didn't have to get spilled out. I am acknowledging my great need for you. I am receiving your love for me, and I'm putting my faith and my hope in you. And today could be a day when you're ready to follow Jesus Christ for the very first time. Here's what I love about communion. Communion is a reminder of the only miracle that you and I are guaranteed. Now, I, I believe that because of, the Jesus, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, I believe that because we read in Isaiah that any miracle is possible to us because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But many of us, we've prayed for miracles and we've seen them, and then we've prayed for other miracles and we haven't. And some of the, sometimes the question we have is, how do I know which one God will answer and which one he, he doesn't? Well, we don't, except for this one. The miracle in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, that is a miracle that is available to who? To every single one of us. Why? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And if I don't get another miracle in my life that I pray for, guess what? It's going to be okay. Because I have the only one I need. Today's a two-year anniversary of the passing of our sister-in-law. We begged God in her seven-year struggle with cancer to redeem her, to restore her body. And I believe that God did that, but he did that on the other side of eternity. The great hope that we had watching Kathleen pass from this life into the next is that we knew she had been reconciled with God. And the miracle that was infinitely greater then her bouncing back from cancer was the fact that she had been forgiven from everything that she had ever thought, done, said, or believed that was outside of the goodness of God. And that is the miracle. Let me be bold enough to venture the, to say the only miracle that we are guaranteed. And if we lose sight of that miracle, we lose the whole picture of Christ as Savior, Redeemer, and King. So I'm going to ask those of you who are helping serve communion with us to go ahead and come to your stations. There are going to be stations across the front. There are stations in the balcony. If you need a gluten-free option or if you are going to get communion for somebody who's, in, uh, who's not mobile to move across the auditorium, those will be in the center, in the back, and in the center here on the floor. So if you need those options, they are available to you. Let me read you this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread... And drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Isn't it interesting? Paul doesn't say you proclaim the resurrection until he comes. It says you proclaim his death until he comes. Why would you proclaim the death of anybody? Like why would you go around and say, hey, somebody died. It's a good thing. The only spot you would ever do that is here when the death of Jesus Christ spells hope, future, and redemption for every single one of us. So when we come to the table of the Lord, we're saying, God, I proclaim your death and all that it means for me. 
and all that it means for anybody else who's ever been scared, afraid, overwhelmed, or trapped in a loop of shame. I declare your death to anybody within the sound of my voice who comes to these doors in this holiday season who doesn't yet know how great the love of Christ is for every single one of us. Because when he went to the cross, he didn't go for a generic humanity. When he went to the cross, he went there for you, and he went there for me. And when Jesus Christ breathed his last, is it possible that he did so with your face on his brain and your name on his lips? And if that is the manifestation, if that's the evidence of the love that Christ has for us, how could we do anything other than break down and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to pray for us and then invite you to the Lord's table together. Father God, I thank you that because of your cross, you give us nothing. No condemnation, no punishment, no death, no shame. And I thank you that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the door is open for us to be something that sons and daughters of the Most High God And Lord, for any person who's in this room or who's participating online who doesn't yet know that they are loved by you, who doesn't yet know that they don't have to live under the curse of condemnation or the threat of punishment or a destiny that leads to death, I pray that you would call them by name and say, come to me, come to me, come to me. I have absorbed into my body all of your wrong, all of your pain, all of your twisted thoughts and mismanaged deeds, you can be forgiven in me and through me and by me. So God, I just pray that that just rich sense of gratitude would fall heavy on us and that when we walk these steps to your table, you would fill our hearts with joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And it's my prayer that we would be people whose face is pushing towards Jesus. Did you know that in in ancient times when they constructed church buildings, the altars were always facing east? You know why? Because that's where the sun rises. So that when they worship, they wanted their faces to be towards the dawn. And that's my prayer for us, the Central Wesleyan Church, that as we roll out of bed, that our faces would not be towards the darkness, would not be towards despair, would not be towards anxiety, would not be towards the things that we cannot control, that our gaze would be fixed towards the resurrected one and say, God, resurrecting power is going to break forth like the dawn in my day today. Give me eyes to see it, a heart to align with it, and feet that want to run to where you are. It doesn't mean that life is going to be without its trials and challenges, but when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, everything that doesn't matter fades into the periphery. That's life that I want, and I think it's the one that you want too. So, people of Central Wesleyan, go in the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ and make sure that you come back on Thanksgiving morning so that we can continue to say, God, thanks for everything, and also, thanks for nothing. If you want to be prayed for by our team, you can come forward to this space here up in the front, or you can go out into the connections room which is out on this side of the lobby. Thanks so much for joining us. Go in peace. We'll see you on Thursday.